Good morning. Are you tired and cranky or just tired or just cranky? I'm glad to see you. So this is a story that's familiar to us. And even though we're tired and cranky, we're reading a story about Jesus being tired and perhaps a little cranky. So I want to I linger over the text. But before, before I do that, I want to ask you, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, an assignment. I want you to turn to somebody. Now, follow the instructions closely because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. So track me here. I want you to turn to people around you. And for 30 seconds to a minute, I want you to talk about what you've heard people say about this story. Now, don't tell them what you think. That way, when I correct it, you've not committed yourself to a reading that I'm undermining. Just say, talk to one another for just a moment about what you've heard about this story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. So, go. It should be noisy. Are you sharing the... <laughs> That's a great one, yes. It should be noisy. Share, share, share. You got about 20 seconds left. Five, four, three. I'm never getting this back, am I? Okay, talk to me, talk to me. What, tell me, just a few people shout out to me, what are some things you've heard about this text? Again, not necessarily what you personally think of it, but what you've heard people say about it. And, and say more, Deacon, about what you mean by that. Yeah, that this is a story about Jews and Samaritans not engaging, but in this case, Jesus kind of crosses those boundaries. Good, excellent, someone else? Yeah. Yeah, so this woman, this Samaritan, who's kind of outside the bounds of God's people is the one to whom God reveals himself first. Christ reveals himself first. Good. Anyone else? Yeah, so that he, he kind of yeah, goes out of his way to make sure he encounters her, right? So the, it's actually not in the reading today, but the verse right before where our reading today began, the, the language is he had to go through Samaria and a lot, of, a lot of preachers have made something of that, right? That he has to go because he knows he's going to meet her there. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I thought would be the first answer. Maybe you guys were trying to outsmart me a bit. But that this is a story of a woman with a, with a kind of sordid past that Jesus calls out. And she, to her credit, stays and finds salvation. And that this is an evangelistic text. Let's hear a couple more. Anything else from these details? Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. To Deacon Steve's point, that there's a, there's a kind of crossing of boundaries. One more, yes. So in the Gospel of John, we don't get that story, so we don't quite know where it fits in, God, in John's telling. So the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, right, it has a different kind of arrangement of story, and it's hard to tell exactly where, where to place it. So we're not, we're not sure about that. I don't know, and that's going to be an important part of the sermon, actually. So that's a good transition. So the, I, there are two kinds of familiar readings of this text that I want to kind of put on the table and then talk about why we need to challenge them. The first one is that this is a kind of conversion story or an evangelistic story in which Jesus shares the gospel with a woman, she's, she believes it, and becomes a Christian. And one, of, one of the problems we have, and you'll, you'll hear this a lot as you're around sanctuary from, from Bishop, from Father Paul, Father Brand, or from me, or whomever else is speaking, that one of the issues that Christianity in America has struggled to overcome in the last few decades is that we, we kind of bought into this idea that what mattered was getting as many people as possible converted to Christianity as quickly as possible. And we didn't really bother too much with helping those people become like Christ. And what we ended up with, it isn't hard to see, is a whole lot of Christians, like people who believe in Christianity, at least they've made some kind of statement about it, who haven't yet learned how to walk Christianly. They haven't learned to live the Christ-like life. Now, I'm putting that pastorally. The cynical side of me wants to say, the problem is not a failure of discipleship. The problem is that we were really good at making converts, and we succeeded beyond our wildest dreams, and that is why we're facing the problem we're facing, is that we've got a lot of people who are convinced they're Christians when in fact they don't have the spirit of Christ at work in them. But that's the cynical side of me. The pastoral side of me wants to say, people want to follow Christ, but we haven't taught them how. We haven't taught them how. There, I'll make a, a few references to, to movies or films today. You guys remember the, the film, Gravity? Sandra Bullock, George Clooney, tremendous, tremendous film. And there's a scene, if you remember, in, in, in it in which Sandra Bullock's character says, no one ever taught me how to pray. No one ever taught me how to pray. Many of us will have grown up around churches, in communities, where everybody talked about praying and told us we should pray, but never taught us how, especially in times of crisis, especially in times in which our world was coming apart. So one of the effects, and there are many, but one of the effects of kind of reading stories like these superficially is that we see this, oh, here's Jesus sharing the gospel with a woman. She believes now she's a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? But this is a story not about a woman becoming a Christian. This is a story about a woman becoming herself. This is not a story about a woman becoming a Christian. This is not a conversion story. This is an epiphany. This is an awakening. This is a woman becoming a person. This is a woman becoming whole, becoming herself. So that's one layer of familiarity. The deeper one, the more problematic one, is what we think we know about this woman. Now, apparently not all of you have heard this, but a lot of us will have grown up hearing that this woman has a really shady past. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now, you're with now is not your husband. 
Come on, raise your hand if you've heard some version of this. Okay, it is more familiar, yes. And what, what we've told ourselves is some version of this story, that Jesus knows he's gonna meet this woman, so he goes out of his way to be at the well at Samaria. When she comes alone to the well, because she's such a disreputable woman, nobody will come to the well at this time of the day. So she's there alone because no one wants to be seen with her except Jesus. You heard some version of this? So here she is at the well, middle of the day, it's just the two of them. She's a disreputable woman. Jesus talks to her anyway, but she's not really honest with him until he calls her out on it and names the skeletons in her closet. Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. No, you don't. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And then we're told in this familiar reading that she tries to deflect the conversation. Oh Lord, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors say we worship in this mountain here in Samaria. You Jews worship in Jerusalem, which is right. Where should we worship? And Jesus says, the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And finally, she understands. We often make fun of her too for her silly questions and her misunderstandings. Are you not greater than, are, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, she says. And we laugh, it's kind of snicker. Does she not know this is Jesus? Or when he says to her, if you knew who I was, I would give you living water. You would ask of me and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. And we laugh that she misunderstands, right? We mock her much like we mock Nicodemus. But the gospel itself is not mocking her. And the text itself does not tell us anything about her past, how she came to be in this situation. It may or may not surprise you, but many Christian readers have noticed this and have argued we have no idea why she's had five husbands. Perhaps they all died. St. Ephraim the Syrian, for example, argues exactly that. This is a woman who suffered unspeakably, who is cursed. A woman who again and again and again suffers the calamity of losing those who should care for her. We don't know how she came to have five husbands. We don't know what it means when Jesus says, the man you're with now is not your husband. We don't know in what way she's with this man. Is he some kind of provider? Is he a caretaker? We, we don't know. We have no idea about this woman, what her story really is. And I, I, before I say more, I want us to just set with how much we think we know that's not actually in the text. And one of the things we're up against is because we've been kind of superficially Christianized, we've been converted without being discipled down into wholeness, down into childlike Christ-likeness. We often can't read the text because of what we think we know already about what it says. And it becomes difficult to hear what God is saying because we're jumping to conclusions about what God can say. Have you ever, you ever encountered anyone like that who interrupts every sentence you're saying? They think they know where you're going. And I don't know, this, this is, I think, a parable. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've never met a person who's like that who ever gets the right guess. Everyone who's like that, oh, let me fill the blank in for you. 
is always jumping to the conclusion of what they would say if they were speaking, not what you're actually saying. And many of us are reading scripture in that way. We think we know what it can say and we're jumping to conclusions before we ever let it speak. So what does this text actually say? And what is God actually speaking to us? So let, let's, I'm not gonna take a long time. I know you're tired, I know you're cranky. Probably especially now because you're like, oh, I want to believe this woman has a terrible past. I need my judgments about her. But I, I want to just point out to you just some lines from the text itself. And then in the end, just say what I think it is God is saying to us. So the, the first point I want to, to kind of draw your attention to is that Jesus is exhausted and thirsty, that he's tired and he needs a drink of water. And I want to underscore that in that God, when he's among us, does not shy away from us at our weakest. What Jesus shies away from is what we imagine as feats of strength. This astounds me, but I want you to think about the fact that in the gospels, in the stories we have of Jesus, there are no stories about him having extraordinary skill. We don't hear about his wonderful singing voice. We don't hear anything about his remarkable talent for telling stories. We don't see people being impressed with any of his skills. That's remarkable. That when God comes among us, he's so ordinary that when he starts performing miracles and teaching the scriptures, people who've known him for 30 years say, where did this come from? Who are you? We know your mom and your brothers. What is this? God's life lived rightly among us is so ordinary, we don't even notice it. God's life lived among us is so ordinary, we look right past it. Jesus comes to his own, his own do not receive him because it's too ordinary. We know you, we know your mom. Where did this come from? Why do you talk like this? What are these miracles? Jesus is thirsty. He's tired and the disciples go into town to eat. Now the text doesn't say this, but I'm sure Jesus was relieved because they, they relieved that they've given him some space because when I'm tired, I don't know about you, but when I'm tired, I need some space. So he sets it, apparently not, you may not pray for my sanctification. So Jesus sets down on the well of Jacob, on the well of Jacob. And this text is filled with mysteries that we're not even going to touch today, but he sits on this well. And this woman comes to him. Now the text doesn't say it's just the two of them. For all we know, there's a whole din around them. There's a, a swirl of activity, but it's just the two of them talking. That's all the story is concerned with. So we don't know that she's come to the well to be alone. We have no idea why she happens to be here at this moment, but she does. And there's this exchange. And the exchange begins with him expressing need can you give me a drink? It begins with him expressing need. Can, can you give me a drink? And she immediately recognizes that he's a Jew and says, how can you ask this of me? Jews and Samaritans don't share utensils. That's technically what she says. Like you're not allowed to use this bucket. And then Jesus 
perhaps a little cranky, says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And this woman, rather patiently, says, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket or a water pot with you. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, this well you're sitting on, and drank drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Now, there are all kinds of ways of hearing this exchange. I think what we need to see is that Jesus is, in his tiredness, he's leading her somewhere. He's leading her somewhere. And she's going there simply because she's willing to stay engaged. She stays in the conversation. And he tells her, everyone who drinks of this water that I give will never thirst again. She says, give me this water. And this is where the conversation really starts to take the turn. Go, tell your husband, and come back. Go tell your husband and come back. Now, again, we have no idea what her story is, her backstory. But what we do know is that she, and she says, she admits, she acknowledges, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you're right. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, again, we don't know what the arrangement is. Has she taken in someone into her care? Has someone taken her into their care? We have no idea if this is licit or illicit. We have no idea what kind of arrangement she's living in. But she knows, and she knows that Jesus knows. And what's first and foremost is the gospel knows we're not supposed to know. So I'm going to kind of try to dig this well deep this morning without taking a lot of time to do it. But I want you to notice, you're not supposed to know her backstory. Jesus is talking to her in a code you're not supposed to break. At the end of the Gospel of John, we get another similar exchange where Jesus is talking to Peter about what's going to happen at the end of Peter's life. And the beloved disciple walks by and Peter says, what about him? And what does Jesus say? That is none of your business. What do you have to do with him? One of the things that's, I think, lovely about how God interacts with us, how God works in our lives, is that he doesn't let nosy people butt into what he's doing among us and within us. God keeps, you remember the line in scripture, it comes up again and again. Love covers a multitude of sins. God does not expose you. I grew up in a church where there was a lot of prophecy. And one of the terrors I had, especially as a teenager, I'll let you guess why, was that some prophet was going to call out my sins publicly, right? That he was going to call me forward and read my mail, as we said, right? None of you ever had any fear of anything like this? I mean, you're in Tulsa. I know at least one or two of you have had an experience like this. But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't expose us. God reveals our hearts to us, for us, but he doesn't expose us to others. And he doesn't expose this woman. Maybe her past is flawed and sordid. Maybe it's not. It's none of our business. It's none of our business. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his lovely, wonderful life together 
talking about how Christians are lived together, he makes this point that the first and most important thing we do for each other is just stay out of each other's business. I mean, that is an incredible grace. Knowing when to stay out of someone's business is a sign of maturity. Not to overreach, not to put your hand where it doesn't belong, not to try to control things that are not yours to handle. So we don't know what happened here. But then this woman asks this question, Lord, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You claim, you Jews claim, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And here's where we get the revelation. Everybody still with me? This is where we get the insight that that I think we're supposed to hear from this text. Listen to what Jesus says. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship. A time is coming when you will worship. You'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, what's her question? What does she assume? It has to be either this or that. Right? Because this is the way that our fallen thinking works. Everything is either this or that. It's right or wrong. It's black or white. It's in or out. It's good or bad. It's ours or theirs. And Jesus says, listen, there's something to that. We worship what we know. You worship what you do not know. But the hour is coming when you will worship neither here nor there. But you will worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying here? That the spirit leads us out of what we do not know and out of what we think we know into mystery. That what the spirit is trying to do with you and with me is to bring us into what St. Augustine called learned ignorance. Now, there's a kind of bad ignorance that God wants to save us from. But you know what's worse than bad ignorance? Bad knowledge. You know what's much harder to correct? People who think they know things they don't actually know. It's so much harder for God to save us from what we think we know than it is God to show us what we know we don't know. And what he's doing is trying to draw us into this Again, in Augustine's phrase, learned ignorance, where we know we don't know, and we're glad that it's not ours to know. Where we rejoice in the fact that we are limited, that we don't have an all-seeing eye, that we don't have all the information, and that it's not ours to make a judgment because we're not given that awareness. And again, we rejoice that we're not given that awareness. The hour is coming, Jesus says, when you will worship neither here nor there. It's not this or that. It's something else altogether. And this, again, let me come back to where I started. When, When everything in us is concerned with getting people to be as Christian as quick to be Christian as quickly as possible, as many people as possible, as quickly as possible converted to Christianity, we just leave them stuck in the this or that way of living in the world. In which all of our arguments about, well, is it Samaria or is it Jerusalem? But what Jesus is trying to do is break the way we see the world altogether, to remake it, to refashion our imaginations so that we recognize what God is doing, where God is taking us is neither here nor there. 
What you think you know and what you do not know are beside the point ultimately. God is taking you into this holy ignorance in which you don't know what's happening and you're glad not to know. A couple more things. Notice what she says in response. And I love this. I love this. The woman said, I know the Messiah. He is coming. Now, does she know that? Yes. What does she not know? He's here. And again, this is the problem with what we think we know about morality. This is the problem with what we think we know about the Bible. Is that even when we're not wrong, we're missing the point. Come on, hear me. It's not so much that you're wrong, it's that it doesn't matter that you're right. Right? When you're watching the news and you jump up to rant, it's not that you're wrong, it's just that that's beside the point. Right? When you disagree with Father Paul or Father Brent's sermons, or God forbid, mine, it's not that you're wrong, it's just that that's, that's not the point. So what if you're right? Yes, the Messiah is coming. He's already here. But he's already here. One of the things we've been obsessed with is arguments about what's moral and immoral. What God is concerned with is holiness, not morality. And holiness is just as far from morality as it is for immorality. What God wants are saints, not nice people. What God wants is the fruit of love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, faith, not for you to be polite. And we as Christians have been in the business of making nice people, or at least people who are nice to those who are like them and deserve that niceness. But what God is interested in is making us people who are through and through sharing in the character of God, not pretending to be good people, but becoming good in the way that God is good. Let, let me be vulnerable with you for just a moment. Uh, it feels odd in here. I hope you guys aren't uh, like mutinying right now. Um, <laughs> please don't start a mutiny, anyone. Father Paul may have to rescue me here. We, we had had a moment with one of our kids. I won't name which one. We have three. It could have been any of them, any one of them. We had had a moment and we were really struggling with what to do, how to respond. And we had talked and I had fallen asleep praying about it. And when I woke up the next morning, this was in my heart. I woke up to this thought. We, Julie and I, are called to collaborate in helping him or her become a good person, not to make them a nice kid. That our job as parents is to help them become good people, not make them nice kids, right? Now that doesn't tell me much about how to do it, but I know that's true, right? It shifts me, notice what that did. It shifted me from a place of knowing what to do. It didn't tell me, okay, do this, 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 and this, but it shifted the posture of my heart. If you wanna care for these kids in this moment of crisis, stop trying to control their behaviors and engage them at a level that brings them toward the personhood, the humanity that God has called them to. That's the shift that has to happen in all of our lives. 
We're trying to control behaviors and appearances and immediate outcomes. God is interested in the long haul process of you becoming a person. This is not the story of a woman becoming a Christian. This is a story of a woman becoming herself. I really am almost done. She says, what does she say? When the Messiah comes, what will he do? Somebody yell it out to me. What does, he, what does she think he will do? He will explain everything. <laughs> and we, we're not mocking her. We're laughing with her. You know that difference, right? We're not laughing at you, St. Fatina. We're laughing with you. He's not going to explain anything. Let me tell you this about Jesus. He doesn't explain anything. And if he starts, you'll wish he hadn't. Trust me, it's better for you not to ask him to explain. And notice the very next thing that he says, I who speak to you am he. What did I tell you? He doesn't explain himself. And right at that moment, the disciples show up. They have impeccable timing. They show up right at this moment. And I love this in the reading from the day. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want from her? Why are you talking with her? Now we are gonna mock them for just a moment. Now think about this, these, here are these disciples, they're seeing Jesus and what comes up in them is condescension toward God. Think about that. These are the apostles. I mean, these are the people who have given us the faith we all say we believe, right? You know, just a moment when we confess the creed, it's these guys who gave us that, right? So here is God in the flesh, on the well, talking to this woman about what's true about her. And these jokers come up and think, what is he doing? I love this because it it says something to me about the kind of condescension that comes up in me too. But here's the thing, they're starting to learn. How do I know they're starting to learn? They don't say anything. Oh my, this is, this is sanctification. I don't have much hope for you not to have that condescension in your heart, but you know what I do have a little bit of hope for? That you can swallow it. I don't have much hope that you or I are gonna grow up very much in terms of what we think and feel internally, but you know what I do think? that sometimes you can just hit delete on that post on Facebook that you've made. Believe it or not, you can just not say it. You can just swallow those words that are coming up in your mouth, just swallow them, it'll be all right. Exactly nothing depends on you saying what you think you need to say. Exactly nothing depends on you being right or me being right. And so listen to this and we're, we're done. Then, right in that moment, when they swallow their words, she goes back to the city. Guys, hear me. If they had said the stupidity that was in their heart to say, this story would have ended differently. Jesus is having this holy exchange with this woman. And of course, the disciples bumble up right into the middle of it. Right? Every time I start flirting with my wife, here comes my nine-year-old right into the room. <laughs> Grabs his mom by the face and kisses her, right? I mean, if we even make eye contact in any way, 
One of our kids calls us, texts us, shows up in the room, invariably, right? That's how the disciples are. They're like, hey, Jesus, you're carrying us. Then they just bump right in between them. The only thing that saves this moment is that at least they keep their mouths shut. Because the moment they swallow their words, she dashes back to the city. She forgets her pot, forgets what she's about because she's known. And what does she say when she gets to the city? Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Now think about that. If it were anyone but Jesus, that wouldn't be good news. I don't want anybody but Jesus knowing everything I've ever done. But he knows it in a way that shows me who I really am. And what Jesus has given this woman is herself. This is who you are. That's what she's found at the well. Not a faith, not a religion, humanity. But that won't happen if you and I interrupt it with our judgments. This is the thought I want to leave you with. God is working at every turn in your life and the life of people around you. You cannot imagine what he's doing in their lives. And so much depends on you not interrupting. Do not speak your judgments. If they come up in you, they come up in you. You can trust them to the Lord, but don't speak them. Learn holy ignorance and be glad that it's not yours or mine, it's his. Amen?